0: This is The Guardian. A quick warning. In today's episode, we discuss the way sexual assault is treated in the courts. If this affects you, I'll be reading out some support services at the end, which could help. Until then, please listen with care. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wadundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. Australian playwright and former lawyer Susie Miller has taken the world by storm with her one woman play, Prima Facie. And the Olivier goes to. Prima Facie!
1: Oh!
0: It's about a criminal defence barrister named Tessa. The only way the system works is because we all play our roles. ...who finds herself on the other side of the law... We each tell a story... ...when she herself is sexually assaulted. And the jury decide which story is the one they believe. The play has sparked major changes in the UK courts, and now it's being released as a novel. So how is this story changing the conversation on sexual assault? And what impact has it had in Australia? Today... Susie Miller on improving the legal system for sexual assault survivors. It's Tuesday, the 17th of October.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot...
2: Hi, I'm Susie Miller, and I'm a playwright, novelist, screenwriter, and a few other things.
0: Jack of all <laughs> trades. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Tessa Ensler is the main character of your book, Prima Face. How much of you is in Tessa and in her story?
2: You know, it's a really good question because her story is a different story to mine, but there's so much of me in her. Mm. I came from a family that no one had had a law law degree, had been to university before I'd been to university. So when I got to university, I was like, I don't know what to wear. I don't know how people socialise. I don't have boys in my class. I don't really know what higher education is. I didn't realise you took notes when you went to a lecture. I thought you just listened and then you sort of went home and remembered it all. So it took me a while to find my feet at university, but I realised other people around me totally knew what university was, had been there to open days and all sorts of things, but also their parents were educated in some of them, you know, like had PhDs and were working in professions. And I realised at a certain point, oh, they see me as someone really as an outsider Mm. and then I realised I was and so I sort of faked it till I made it really. But having said that, you know, once I was in the profession and once you sort of prove yourself to actually know the law well enough and you had good grades at university You can kind of catch up at a certain point, but what you don't realise is you never quite catch up on the power stakes, as in when something goes wrong, really there's a bit of clubbiness about those sort of families that have been legal families forever that you're not part of.
0: Mm. Like Tessa, you also went into the law wanting to change the world.
2: Absolutely. So what did you hope that you'd do? I think that I would just fight for people. You know, I, I mean, I wanted to fight for the underdog, but that's a very naive way of thinking in many ways because, of course, everyone wants to fight for the underdog. But when you realise the underdog is so underprivileged because not only are they socioeconomically having some issues, but also that leads to other issues. So they're either in foster care or they're, they've got drug and alcohol problems because they've been abused as children or they've even got drug and alcohol problems because they've been abandoned or mm. whatever. But, I mean, I started to see so many patterns emerge in the people that I acted for that it's hard to even think that it's a fair playing field. Mm. There's so many ideas that you
0: bring about the law that are in this play. And it's made such an impact. I mean, I watched the play earlier at the Melbourne Theatre Company and I was amazed by, I mean, I'm, I'm invested in all of the things you're talking about, but mm-hmm. I, I was so struck by how difficult it is to make a subject as challenging as sexual assault and a world as insular as the legal profession so compelling to such a
2: broad audience. Thank you. Thank you. So congratulations. I mean. (laughs) Thank you. It took a while. I mean, it took me while I was at law school thinking about it and planning it for years. mm. And then one day I said, I think I know how I can do it. And it was before Me Too, like literally just before Me Too broke. So I never thought it would go on. Yeah. But when I wrote that play, I basically wrote the novel and adapted the play from the novel. So now the novel's out there because I wasn't a novelist before this.
0: Right. So before you were a playwright, you were a criminal defence lawyer. Yeah. And I know that you've drawn on all of that experience for this story and both of those jobs require a fair deal of storytelling.
2: Absolutely. So one of the jobs of a criminal defence lawyer is sometimes when someone pleads guilty or when they are found guilty Mm. uh, that they get sentenced, as people usually know, and it's often a judge that will do the sentencing or a magistrate. And what I realised was I was getting such good results from my sentencing because when I stood up for a sentence submission, I would actually tell the story of my client. I mean, I worked with young people under 25 who were living on the streets, that worked in the sex industry, that had drug and alcohol problems, had mental health problems, I mean, and lots of other issues in between. And so I would stand up and say to the magistrate or judge, you know, this happened to this person at three. Where was the state then? They didn't intervene. They sent them back to a home where drug and alcohol reigned. Then this happened to them when they were five. No state intervened. Then they went to a state school. And when they went missing, there was not a lot of intervention or no one picked up on some of the issues that were happening at home Mm. now finally they're before the criminal justice system and you want to put them in jail so what I'm saying to you is let's see what we can do for the state to give them the opportunity to actually have some healing and go forth Mm. as a productive member of the community rather than at 21 going to prison which we know is going to increase their prison time and institutionalize them possibly for life Mm. and so I would set up a system of like social care and social work and like drug and alcohol rehab and so forth and a mental health um, facilitator and say, I've got all this set up ready to go today, it's all ready to go, but if you say no, it all collapses Mm. and then they never have access to that. So you make it easy for the judge or the magistrate to go, okay, I'll give them that chance Mm. because no one wants to run the risk that they've given someone non-jail period if they're going to go out and do something that's going to be on the front page of the Herald or the front page of the Guardian. (laughs) So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in the context of sexual assault, Mm. you argue in the book that the criminal justice system isn't actually about finding out the truth. It's about telling the mm. best version of the story exactly. of the allegations. So instead of finding out the truth, you're finding out what you call
2: legal truth. Yeah. So can yeah. you just
0: talk me through that a little Absolutely.
2: bit? Absolutely. And you know, I, I used to explain to my kids when they were young what I did when I went to court because they said, well, what do you do? <laughs> and so I came up with a really basic way of explaining it, but actually I realised it actually helped me explain it to non-lawyers as well. So it's right. not so basic, but it's basically, I would say, I would take my client's story and re narratize that and tell the judge story and then the prosecution would listen to the person on the other side and tell their story Mm. and that's all that we would do and the judge or the jury or the judge and the jury would decide which story was the most believable within the rules of the law Mm. and so basically a lawyer standing up and arguing for something often people will say oh how could they act for that person but the system is set up that everyone gets a lawyer and so the cab rank rule applies to barristers which is if you're booking diary is free and someone wants a barrister and it's in your field of law, then you have to do it. And the idea is to protect everyone so that the worst criminals still have representation in court because that's what's fair. Mm. They're not supposed to be there unrepresented in case they're not guilty. Mm. So, I mean, it's a really important part of it and it's that framework of human rights. But actually what happens is that the general public or even other people generally just see lawyers and think, oh, they're arguing for that person, they must believe them or they just want to get, get them. Money out of it or something. And Mm. it's not the case. It's actually, they are an officer of the court before they're anything else. And their duty is to do the best possible version Mm. of that client's story so that they can't later on say, oh, but no one got the evidence right or no one told this bit of the evidence or this wasn't considered and it should, Mm. you know, this wasn't legal. Mm. So it's sort of, it's a kind of snakes and ladders game in many ways. And lots of things you have to consider in advance so that you're 10 steps ahead of what you're doing to make sure. You know, it's it's appeal proof later, and make sure that you get everything before the court, so the court can decide. Mm. Well,
0: I mean, if it's about finding the best version of the story, mm. um, or the mo- the one that has the most legal truth in it, rather than yeah. finding out the actual truth, I guess. What impact does that have on sexual assault survivors?
2: Well, what happens is there's only two people usually in a sexual assault allegation, and it's a woman usually and a man usually, and it's usually as perpetrator and victim, mm. and the victim's story is her version of what happened and the male story is no that's not what happened it was consensual that's you. so when it's about consent and the axis of proof is around consent it's like it's not even did she consent or not mm. it's did he know she was consenting or not mm. so even if she absolutely wasn't and they can prove that well he didn't know that then it's it's not sexual assault mm. so that's the really hard thing there's no outside witnesses and you know and the actual place where the evidence is is the woman's body so it's like, are there bruises? Are there cuts? And often there's, no, there's invisible markings. There's, you know, it's like, a, it's like an assault of the mind in many ways as well as the body and the mind carries the trauma but the body is healed or it hasn't actually shown anything in photographs and so mm. forth. You know, and also if you'd had consensual sex previously, it's not such a big deal to find other sort of forensic evidence. So it's a really, really hard one. And it was interesting to me is when I was putting the play together and also the book when I was in London and I was talking to some friends of mine who are judges at the Old Bailey and one of them said very firmly, a court of law is not the right forum. It's an incorrect forum for sexual assault because it actually just re-traumatises the victim and it doesn't actually get to anything that's actually a a commendable outcome. Mm.
0: Well, I mean, Tessa devotes her life to the legal system because she believes that it provides justice. Yeah. She says, law is indeed a tool for good. But mm. you write that one in three women are suspected to have been sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. And yet only about one in 10 ever report that to police and yeah. only about 1.3% of perpetrators are ever convicted of their crimes. So mm. do
2: you think the law really is a tool for good? Well, I did when I started out, obviously, but now I think, you know, I think the law has to catch up with contemporary society. So just for example, this idea of affirmative consent is, you know, the onus is on the perpetrator to say, oh, I, I checked in. I said, mm. is this okay? Having said that, it's still he said, she said. So if he says he did that, there's only her to deny it. Mm. So it's a very tricky thing to find even the legal truth, let alone the actual truth. And because of all the rape myths within the community, even in the jury system, and all of us even here have some, even if we hate that we have them, mm. we go, oh, my God, what was she, she was wearing that. And, and You can wear what you like, you can drink what you like and you can, you can have sex throughout the night and then you can say, no, I've changed my mind. I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, both those things can be true. All of those things can Mm. be true at the same time. But, you know, it seems like our community hasn't caught up with the fact that that's actually the case. And that's actually the legal truth. But having said that, the rape myths intervene constantly to undermine the complainants. um, Mm. And that's why so many women don't go to the police. And they don't report it or if they do, they don't want to go to court because they think this could be disastrous for me. I could be seen to be a liar about something that's so traumatic for me and that I have such an outrage that it happened and so much... I think one of the other awful things is that of the sexual assault victims that I spoke to, every single one of them blamed themselves. And it's not just because they have their own kind of, you know, patriarchy and built into them. But if they told someone, they said, oh, no, well, why did you go? Or how come you invited him back? Or, oh, how many drinks did you have? So the inference is you could have stopped it from happening. Right. And I think that, it's really interesting because young women now, you know, 25 to 35, I have so many conversations with amazing young women who actually the stigma of having been sexually assaulted has been removed on some level and they say, this happened to me and I didn't report it because I didn't trust the system. Mm. And I think the other thing is that, you know, if you look at various high-profile cases, you realise if the system doesn't seem to work or it breaks down in the process of the, of the hearing, then we basically do the same kind of arbitration around what the water cooler at work or oh, I think he did it, or oh, I think she's lying so it just becomes a court of popular opinion which is the absolute opposite of what the justice system is there for it's actually to provide a framework
0: right instead it perpetuates all of those myths exactly myths. yeah why do you think it is that we still find it so hard to believe women who've been sexually assaulted including women as well
2: well, yeah, I think well, women are just as much part of the patriarchy as men are. We've been brought up with it. We've been, you know, it's infiltrated our thinking. It's made us feel shame if we don't measure up to what the patriarchy expects of us. So it's about breaking that down as an individual. But as a community at large, I mean, if you've come from generations and generations of male judges and not not just male judges white male quite wealthy judges and politicians making the law they're looking at it from their perspective so the responsibility was always put back on women in terms of sexual activity and they're the ones that they're the ones that should stop it or should say no or whatever mm. and so there's all this kind of shame attached to it and blame attached to it And the irony is that they're probably, it's really hard once something like that is happening. And even when you're saying no and being ignored, to physically escape someone that's stronger than you Mm. physically.
0: Yeah. So the shame continues, just evolves into a different version of that shame.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And I think the shame gets worse because then if you have the guts to tell someone, someone's first reaction isn't, how dare he? It's like, what were you wearing or yeah. what what did you drink and i think that continues whether people like it or not that just, mm-hmm. and even really interestingly is that the actual play of the book which went um they had a screening of the actual play that Jody Comer was in in north northern yorkshire for 3000 police officers and afterwards they had a day where they discussed the screening in the context of how they interview complainants and how mm-hmm. they take it to court mm-hmm. and the amount of comments that have been put together and letters from inspectors and high, high-ranking police officers saying, I now reflect back on the complaints I've taken from women and I've said all the wrong things or I've asked questions that I'm really mortified because I didn't know I was just perpetuating that it was their fault.
0: Wow. Police officers. Police
2: officers. But, you know, like police officers from, you know, of all ages, but northern Yorkshire, we're talking, you know, Mm. a really really rough area sometimes. And so it's that idea of going, if the police, if you rock up to a police officer and say, this happened to me, and you don't look right or you look messy or you look like you're a bit drunk or whatever, you know, you're not treated like someone that's just had their human rights violated. You're treated as someone that, well, what do you expect? And mm. I'll tell you another story. There was a police station during schoolies a couple of years ago where a young woman went in with her mother to say she'd been sexually assaulted and the police officer on the other side of the counter said, we don't call that rape here, we call that regret. Wow. That's in Australia in, like, in, you know, in the last five years. Wow. Uh, That makes
0: me very sad. I mean, you mentioned the police viewing. Um, Mm. Prima facie is directly changing or influencing the law on sexual assault overseas. The play is now compulsory viewing for Northern Irish High Court judges considering these cases, and it also inspired barristers and judges in London to start an advocacy group for law reform in sexual assault named after Tessa. Tessa, Um, Why do you think it took a
2: play for some of these systemic problems to start to be addressed in this way? That is such a great question. I think what theatre can do is create empathy where there wasn't empathy before. And I think storytelling does that. So if you read a story about someone that you actually care for and you want their life to go okay and you think it's reasonable that it should
1: Mm. and then
2: you see what comes about because when it doesn't, you actually empathize with them but then there's something else that happened which was amazing to me as a lawyer because you know like i went there i went to law school to change the world and I basically got a phone call one evening from a very high up high court judge and she'd got my number from one of the barristers while I was in London. And she called and she said, look, I'd just like to introduce myself and let you know who I am. You know, really very, very intelligent, very, very strong woman. And she said, I'm one of the judges at the, I'm the judge at the Old Bailey that uh, writes the directions to the jury for all the judges in the UK. And after I went to see the play, I sat up and I thought about it and I've rewritten the direction to the jury of what they have to consider in rape and sexual assault cases. And I've actually used lines from the play where they say just because you can't deliver the evidence in a nice, consistent clear and chronological manner does not mean you're lying. You have to take into account that women will freeze when there's quite a possibility that's actually a very, that's not an unusual reaction.
0: Right. So directly addressing rape myths to the jury before they consider whether or not someone has been been guilty. And actually
2: now all the judges have to say these lines that actually have lines from the play in it, which she said, I call it my prima facie direction. (laughs) So it, and she sent me a copy of it recently just over email. And she said, here it is for just so that you know exactly what we say. And, you know, I, when I put the phone down after that five minutes, I literally thought, ah, oh, that might be the culmination of all my law practice. The best thing I ever did was that, you know, having that woman come to see my play. Mm. It's
0: amazing how art
2: can move culture in a way that the law just can't by itself. Yeah. Um, but I think lawyers know that. I think lawyers are really interested in culture. They're really interested in the arts in a way or writing or, mm. you know, they're, they're very wordy people as Mm. well. So they see when there's a glitch and something's inconsistent or there's a sort of.
0: But it takes that.
2: Exactly. To see so it. So you need to show it so they see it. Like they're, right. not, they're so busy in their daily life that no one sits back and goes, oh, gosh, if I really think about this, I'm not sure whether I want to be part of it. You yeah. Know. When it's broadcast back to Absolutely.
0: you. Absolutely. Know, are looking yeah. at it. Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned that, like, Tessa, you came from humble beginnings and uh, you've also said you have a bit of a chip on your shoulder about <laughs> class. Um, I do. <laughs> but as you say, you know. Getting you Getting better at it. <laughs> <laughs> but as you say, you've been able to influence, you know, basically the top of the legal food chain. Um, yeah. Judges, barristers. <laughs> through theatre, which is often a medium that's criticised as being pretty inaccessible to the working class.
2: Yeah, I know. And you know, I didn't go to the theatre before I was in my 20s and I didn't realise kids got taken to the theatre until I started taking my kids. (laughs) But But how do you feel about that? I feel, look, you know what I feel? I feel quite humbled because I also feel that I was, you know, really fortunate to be able to be a playwright. I mean, you know, like my mother wouldn't have been able to be a playwright. So, you know, like to be a lawyer was already like, wow, my parents were so excited. Also a little bit like, oh, we don't like lawyers, they do horrible things, you know. So um, it's interesting that, but, you know, to go that next step and be a writer as well and be able to write plays and novels and films and actually have people ask you questions and interact with you. And my husband also came from quite humble beginnings and now he's a judge. So you sort of think... Maybe that only can happen in Australia. I'm not sure. I don't know for sure. But what I do know is that the audience I have in London and even in New York in on Broadway has been phenomenal and have really taken it seriously and there's lots of advocacy that I feel has gone on because I spoke up and, and actually formulated a story around it. Mm. And I think that what's been amazing to me is the amount of letters and DMs and Honestly, the amount of feedback I get from audience members of all different races, all different genders even, all different ages, and telling me either a personal story or just saying I never thought of it like that before. Mm. or And, you know, even a 50-year-old man that said, you know, I look back on my life in my 20s and I thought it was my role to coerce women to have sex with me so they didn't feel like they were being promiscuous oh my God. and he goes you know I'm really worried now about and I think well that exactly because that was the norm at a certain point that wow. you know like that men wouldn't realize that that might be being coercive you wow. know wow. so um but it was interesting for someone to admit that to me as well and I thought the more open we are the more we can work towards a solution I mean the fact of the matter is if only one in ten women who've reported it out of the one in three that it happens to if, if that only one in ten of those even go to court and there's a 1.3 conviction rate, then something's not working. There's no doubt about it. Not all Mm. those men are innocent. (laughs) Mm. But I think the other thing is, um, aside from that, is also that you think... It's not just the one in three. Everyone else, every woman I know, I'm yet to find an exception, doesn't walk home from the tube or the station late at night not holding their keys or holding their phone in a certain way and if they see a man across the road, no matter who the man is, there's a real risk for them, there's a real risk of danger and I mean like rape and murder. I'm not just talking about being robbed or something, I'm talking about there's real physical danger for your survival Mm. and I know that there's not a woman I know that hasn't had that experience walking home. And so what does that say? If 100% of women have had that experience walking to their home after coming home from work or coming home from being out, mm. then, you know, there is a real issue with violence against women. And we know that femicide is on the rise in Australia. Mm. And, you know, it, it has to be spoken about for the community to have discussions where we say this is not part of our value system.
0: Next, Susie Miller weighs in on recent Australian changes to the Law on Sexual Consent. Prima facie started in Australia, but it's obviously taken the rest of the world by storm. Has it had the same impact in the Australian legal system?
2: So, we had one night at the Griffin Theatre in Sydney, which was just for women lawyers. So, we had like 400 women lawyers, and you had to be legally trained. So, you weren't just a lawyer. We had politicians, we had Tanya Plebisek there, we had five judges, we had QCs, and now they're, well, they're SCs in, in New South Wales, solicitors, you know, people that were trained in law but were doing other things. And it was an amazing discussion. It went for three hours. I was on stage with the actor and director who were just like horrified that all these lawyers were cross-examining us. But um, (laughs) it was so amazing because they shared their stories and they said, you know, what's interesting for them is that Tessa's story is within their workplace. Mm -hmm. They said, that happens to women lawyers with other barristers or other lawyers. Mm -hmm. And to complain about it means you might actually destroy your whole career. And all that time you spent at law school, as a solicitor, as a barrister, all the money you've spent to get chambers, all the time you've spent... away from your family, is it worth it Mm. to watch that disappear so that you can get justice for something, not always? Mm. And then there was a woman barrister. I was quite nervous because she's a defence lawyer I, I know of. And I thought she's going to demolish me for being a bit pro-prosecution in this regard. But she said at the end, she said, I'd just like to say something. And I was like shriveling. (laughs) And she said, I'd just like to say that I do this for a living. I do it every day of my life. This is what I do. And she said, and I get all my clients off. And she said, and the truth of the matter is that if my goddaughter or my niece put their hand up and said they've been sexually assaulted, I would never let them go to court because Mm. I know they'd be demolished by someone like me.
0: So separate to the play and the book, as you've said, there have been a lot of reforms in the area of sexual assault recently. Mm -hmm. Um, You've personally advocated for the idea of affirmative consent, which has been introduced into law in Tasmania, Victoria and New South Wales. Yes, yes. Firstly, can you explain for our listeners what affirmative consent is if they haven't heard
2: of it? Sure. Affirmative consent is that you don't just assume consent, you actively seek it out in Mm. many ways. So you don't just assume that someone by not fighting you is consenting. It seems really basic, right? (laughs) right? But in the past that wasn't the case. If someone wasn't moving or wasn't responding to you, that you was an assumed consent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I often say to people, if you went into a nursing home and there was an elderly person there and you basically just decided to sort of do something to their stomach or punch them in the in the arm or something, you, you can't just go because they didn't say anything, they they were consenting. I mean it's crazy to think that you can access anyone's body without consenting, without ac- actively seeking consent. Mm. So um affirmative consent expects there to be either an obvious consent from the female or you've actually asked for the, you've affirmatively secured consent.
0: How do you think that could make a difference to the way
2: these criminal trials are run? Well, I think the first thing that it does is it doesn't expect the woman to be on trial the whole time without having any expectation of the male person in court, Mm. so that if the woman can actually say, no, I definitely wasn't, then these are the things that happened to my body. I mean, you know, if if there's no physical evidence, it's really just on the woman's evidence. And basically if you demolish the witness in the stand and give them all sorts of reasons why they're lying and how inconsistent their evidence is because they're not remembering it properly, then you just, you know, there's nothing stands up. Mm. But if you actually then say, well, hang on, we don't think that this is as easy as you think. So what did he do to um, af- like ascertain consent? Like, mm. But even, even that, that's not enough, to be honest, because often that's just he said, she said all over again. So I don't know what the answer is. And if I did know, <laughs> I would be a one-person law reform commission. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because lots of law reforms have looked at this. But it, mm. I think the best information I got was from that high court judge in the Old Bailey in London, and she just said it's not the correct forum for it this way of cross-examining a, a witness. Right. So, you know, there's you can argue for all sorts of things, but there's always a cost.
0: Yeah, and I guess the underlying problem is the system is not set up for these kinds of crimes.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Well, prima facie's been in theatres all around the world, you're releasing a novel now and soon it'll be turned into a movie. How has it been for you developing this one story into all these different mediums?
2: I have absolutely loved writing the novel. I just got to dig in beyond my own with no actors, directors, producers, just me and the words on the page. And it's been delightful working with editors. It's just been a really lovely experience. Mm. Writing the film has also been a great experience and I've got a different input from like, like a visual input from the director there, so it's quite different again. Mm. Uh, they're all very, very different, I have to say.
0: Unlike the play, the person playing Tessa is a Tony, Emmy and Grammy award-winning actress, Cynthia Erivo, who is mm. a black British actress. Mm-hmm. What do you think this will add to the story?
2: It's already added so much to the story because it's infused into the writing now. But what will it, it will add is a different community's perspective and also that idea that, I mean, I've got a lot of my friends at the bar in the UK who work out of the Old Bailey are black women who are amazing and they've really just been so generous with their storytelling of some of the things that happened to them like for mm. example being being at the bar and someone assuming that, that they're the client you know awful things like that but even aside from that just I mean for many of them there's not there's not many black judges so it's sort of recognizing that you're up against something else as well You've started a really big conversation on sexual assaults and about how the
0: legal system unfairly treats women survivors. Where do you think this conversation
2: needs to head next? I think it has to head to a place where we really interrogate from all different angles how we can make the system work better for complainants. So from the minute that something happens and they go and make a complaint to police, so that like out of the 1 in 3, the 1 in 10 that does go to the police is the numbers are higher and that they have some choice along the line as to whether they want to actually activate the case now or they want to sit on it for a while, to recognise their trauma as they're retelling that story, to recognise the trauma they go through in court to actually not assume that they're lying as a first port of call, which seems to happen often. And I think really the most important thing for me is to educate the greater community in terms of saying this is not the shame of the victim, it's the shame of the person that did this to them. Mm. And... We need to educate everyone, like, you know, the older generation, the younger generation. And I had a really interesting experience when the first preview of Prima Facie that went to Sydney, the very first time it was on stage with an audience, and we had a group of 14-year-old boys there from a private school, and they were so excited and they loved it and they queued up for the autographs of myself and the actor and then one of them said, all excited, almost jumping up and down, said, I didn't even know that was rape. And I thought, well, therein lies the problem. I mean, if young boys are about to head into that bro zone from 15 to 23, I call it the zone where they leave their mothers behind and stop listening to what their mothers are saying and start listening to what boys are saying, if they're already thinking like that, we're really in trouble. (laughs) So I actually really call upon men to actually really be a mentor to to young men like big brothers sort of big co- older cousins like fathers to actually go into that zone and have those uncomfortable conversations with boys as a man that's looked up to by them
0: That was Susie Miller, author of Prima Facie*, which was published by Pan Macmillan Australia. If listening to this episode affected you in any way, support is available at the National Domestic Family and Sexual Violence Counselling Service 24 hours a day on one respect That's one 737 732 That's it for today. This episode was produced, sound designed and mixed by Daniel Simo. Theme music was by Joe Koning. The executive producer was Hannah Parks. I'm Jane Lee. Thanks for listening.